Yo, welcome to my summer lair. I'm your host, Sam Yunan. Tonight's guest isn't just anyone. It's Charles Soule. He is the writer of Darth Vader, Daredevil. His Daredevil run was really cool. There was a lot of really cool stuff in there. I said cool twice, didn't I? He also wrote a novel called Oracle Year. That was his first novel. And now he's returned with a second novel, Anyone. Uh, this one, Oracle Year, was kind of like supernaturally kind of thriller-ish kind of touches just touches of science fiction anyone is firmly science fiction so i was really excited to kind of get into anyone uh, the novel comes out december 3rd and uh he also is an active writer on a number of star wars books for marvel comics so that's exciting so we'll get into all of that stuff welcome back charles soul hello yep i'm ready to go okay great Beaming from Pacific Junction Hotel to Earth. Welcome back, Charles, to uh, my summer lair. And uh, you are having an incredible November. Uh, you started off in November. You checked out Paisley Park, Prince's environment. I did. I, I did. I was out in Minneapolis for a convention there called GalaxyCon. A lot of my travel is related to comic conventions, which is, is actually turned out to be kind of a nice thing. You, uh, you get to go all over the country, all over the world. And, and that particular weekend, I was in Minneapolis, which is where Prince was from. And uh, I got in a day early on purpose because I really wanted to check out Paisley Park, which was his home and his studio and where he recorded, you know, his, one of some of his most remarkable albums. Uh, and, and it was just, you know, I'm a massive Prince fan. So the opportunity to go see that, and it was like going, you know, it was a pilgrimage for me, basically. And, and I got to, you know, play ping pong on his ping pong table and record vocals in one of the studios. And it was just a really 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 special time so i really loved it when you're writing uh comics and your novels are you writing to prince's music at all oh sometimes sure i i uh i have a i'm looking at my uh, my record player right now and i'm very cliche about that stuff i definitely listen to you know I'm, I'm a guy with a big record collection so i listen to prince i listen to a lot of jazz i listen to you know really all kinds of things the 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 stuff i listen to when i'm writing tends to be music that either i know very well so that it's not distracting because I know it so well that it's kind of just, it sort of can fade into the background or it's music that is almost background by design. So things that have a lot of drones in it, things that have, you know, repetitive beats like electronica, stuff like that. So it's, I like music because it's a buffer between me and the rest of the world while I'm writing, but it can also be invasive depending on whether uh, it's something that like, if I really start enjoying the music, it kind of gets in the way of the, of letting my mind. <laughs> Would you ever like, if you're writing like an action sequence or something, either in a comic book or in a novel, and there's like a lot of like something's happening and there's people are running and they're in danger and stuff like that, would you ever put in something a little bit more um, amped, or would you score the would you score the scene to your writing? You know, I I used to do that more, and I have done it in the past. Uh, the the thing is, um, generally speaking, I I I don't I don't really need to that much. I mean, music for me is more. Like I said, it's the way it's it's like it's it's an odd way to put it, but it's almost like earplugs. It's a way to to create a layer between myself and the the rest of the world, so I can get into my own head very deeply and get into you know the flow state that lets me really just you know where the really good connections and ideas come from. Mm-hmm. The reason I brought up Prince and uh, Paisley Park was a because that's really cool, but then uh, b uh, your new novel, Anyone, it opens up in Ann Arbor, and your main character Gabrielle White. She's on her property, and, and she goes out. She has a bar in there where it's a laboratory, and she's basically experimenting and trying to find a cure for Alzheimer's. But the lab, uh, you kind of described the lab a little bit at the beginning, and it's built to her specifications. And this was kind of your quest, too, for the last little while, where you're trying to find, like, you're talking to different writers and artists and talking about their studios and where they write and their homes. And, st- mm-hmm. and you kind of now settled in on uh, building your own writing environment. Is that correct? Yes. So I'm actually in, I'm not in that studio, but I'm in that location right now that has the studio attached to it. Yeah, the, there's, a, there's a, a town in upstate New York that I'm not necessarily going to name right here because it's where I have my place. But mm-hmm. uh, it's in upstate New York on the, on the Hudson River, and it is absolutely gorgeous. There's mountains and rivers, and just it's, it's a very natural environment. And so, um, you know, I have a place up here, which is really lucky and nice. It's right in the middle of kind of a, a mountainside, and there's lots of trees and stuff around. And I wanted a, a place that I could go where, again, it, it really is about all of these choices, whether it's music or location, are about removing yourself from the world of distractions that you can just get into the world that's in your own head. And then from there, the world that you're trying to create in your story. And so 
I, I did talk to a bunch of different writer friends of mine, asked how they approached a writing space, and some consistent things came came across. Uh, you know, having uh, really good Wi-Fi, having having yes. you know, having not having it be very big, you know, so that you it was it it wasn't a place where you know it was a place that you went for that job basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I, I sort of took those things and put them together, and 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 was able to you know, have a studio built for me, which is, which is luxurious. And I realized how, you know, how privileged I am to be able to have a space like that, but it's, it's really been great. It's, it's really let me write some really cool stories. I've done some great work down there that I'm very proud of already, even though I've only had it since, I don't know, the summer. So, um, so it's excellent. And I, 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 uh, guess I would, I would recommend any writer, whether it's a studio or whatever it is, like finding a dedicated space for writing because it, it, it makes a difference. You have a place that you go to and you know that, you know, the game is on when you go in there. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a queue. It's almost like when you step into a bar or something, right? Like even if you've had a long day or something, once you kind of step into a bar, your shoulders kind of sag a little bit. You get a drink, maybe you know some friends and like your whole um, vibe and everything kind of just changes and you shift for this kind of more social environment. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, you I, I do I do work in bars, I do work in coffee shops, I work, you know, there's lots of places that I work. But when the real business needs to get done, when I when I really need to like turn out the chapters or finish the script or or any of those things, it's really about going to the place where that is for no other purpose other than just, just doing that job. And that job of course includes this new novel, Anyone. And just yeah. uh, give us a little bit of a taste. So it begins with a botched experiment. And what happens after that? How much can you share or tell us about the novel? Uh, well, a fair amount. I mean, the, the, it does start with a botched experiment. And, and that's partly because uh, if you look at the history of science and technology, many, many incredible innovations come from exactly that, a spot where, where the researcher or the scientist was, was aiming for one target and something got screwed up and they ended up with something radically different that, that put them on an entirely different research path. Um, you know, penicillin is a good example um, you know, the curies and radiology are sort of an example. Like there's a lot of different things that, um, in, in, in the history of research, you know, even, even to like, I don't know, like Newton's apple, right? Like he wasn't, you know, I, that obviously I believe is mm-hmm. a fictional story, but like stuff like that, you know, when, when people, you know, science is, is a process of trial and error and, and there can be a lot of gold in the air. So you can't put like science into the GPS basically. Yeah. You know, for sure. But at any, at any rate, in the story, of, in the novel, anyone, you have a scientist, um, Gabrielle White, who is working, um, she's an independent researcher working on a cure for Alzheimer's, um, which is based on basically flashes of light that are beamed in through the eyes uh, that can uh, stimulate certain neurons that are related to the body's, the, the brain's really autoimmune system, because the brain has its own immune system that um, can, can sort of solve things like Alzheimer's, scrub away the plaque and so on and so forth. But when you get Alzheimer's because of the nature of the disease, your brain forgets how to do that. And Mm so this technique, uh, it basically reactivates the neurons that allow the the brain's immune system to work again, and then they can get rid of the Alzheimer's for a while. So it's actually, it's a true therapeutic technique that's being researched and developed. I, I heard about it on, um, episode of a show called Radio Lab, I think, some years ago. And then the idea always really just stuck with me. So the idea is that Gabrielle White, Gabby White, is researching this. And she got some money from some people uh, and has been using it to try and research the, you know, like a VC company. She's using it to try and research that technolo- this technology. Um, and she's on her last, like, you know, thousand bucks, right? She's blown through all the money she had. She has enough cash left to run her, her apparatus one last time. And she's like, well, you know, screw it. I'm just going to turn everything to 11 and I'm going to just mm-hmm. see what happens. And so she does that with, to a rat. Um, she's not doing it to a person. It's all very, you know, lab animals and such. Uh, and and the, the apparatus, because it's overloaded, breaks kind of and something accidental happens. And these patterns of light flash across the inside of her lab, which is built into a barn on, on the, you know, the farm where she lives with her husband and her daughter, her baby daughter. And She's, she's like, whoa, this is crazy. Look at those crazy lights that are flashing over the ceiling, like the pattern of lights. And before she knows it, she blinks, and she, is, she has been transported into her husband's body. Her husband was back in the farmhouse putting their baby to bed, uh, and she finds herself holding her baby, but not with her own hands. She's holding it with her husband's hands. 
and she is understandably freaked out, doesn't know what's happened, doesn't know what happened to her body. Was it a, was it a two-way swap? You know, I, it's, it's, it's insanity for her. She just doesn't know. And so that's the first chapter of the book is this moment when this crazy thing has apparently been invented. Chapter two, you flash forward 25 years to a point when the technology or the, you know, this accidental thing has become a technology, has become ubiquitous technology like smartphones or um, the internet or anything like that. And people use it all the time to flash. It's called the flash, the flash between bodies. And they use it to like commute to work. So if you get a job, you live in Toronto, you get a job in Florida, instead of flying to Florida every day, you would just flash into a vessel down in Florida and then you would do the work and then you would flash back to your own body. And so it, it has, there's, there's many, many, many ways that it has affected society from uh, just sort of people, people's approach to their physical self has, has evolved drastically. Um, you know, people's approach to physical beauty, people's approach to, um, you know, ability, ableness, um, gender, many, many things have evolved, which some of which are good, some of which are bad. Um, the, the, and and it's, it's sort of a story about how this, this ability to move into other people's bodies would affect the world. And you have a, a, a main character in that future section uh, who named Anami, who apparently has had her life destroyed by this technology and is, is on kind of a revenge crusade. So, so the story, the novel, flips back and forth between the future and the present in, in every chapter. So, you know, present, future, present, future. And you get a story of, of Gabrielle White trying to understand what she's invented and, and try to, trying to control it and trying to make sure that it, it creates a world that she thinks could be a, a better world. And so that's kind of a story about who owns, who owns inventions, who owns ideas, you know, who has the responsibility of bringing new technologies to the world, and how should it be done. Intercut with the future story, which is all about the consequences of technology and what's happened with them, and, and a world where anyone can be anyone. And all of these changes I mentioned have happened. Like, what is a world like and a society look like in that? Mm-hmm. And those two stories are linked and related, and they intertwine in, in some really compelling ways. And that's about as far as I wanted to go in, in terms of the, the plot. Yeah. No, that's great, because there, there is a lot that's going on uh, there, as you said. And you mentioned that the Alzheimer's uh, research is based on fact. The, is yeah. the in terms of your research is this whole body switching thing at all like are people looking into this or researching this or is this something real or is this still like fictional and just kind of like realm of science fiction no i think it's i mean this is a science fiction novel the the you know i what i will say is that the nature of consciousness is very 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 poorly understood mm-hmm. like there's i did a lot of reading and research into what consciousness is and it's really fascinating because your, your experience of the world as you look out at reality is very much defined by both your physical body and the, the things that have happened to you over your life. Because um, the wild thing is, like, in your brain, there are, there are billions and billions of neurons, right, those nerve cells that, that, that activate or, or brain tissue cells that, that are part of the electrical network that, that is your brain. And if you have an experience, one of those neurons is sort of assigned to that memory or that experience. And if you have that experience or a similar experience, or you think about that experience again, that neuron lights up in your brain. So it's like, you know, Bill Clinton, right? Mm-hmm. So whatever, whatever, the first time you learned about Bill Clinton's existence, you, a neuron was assigned in your mind to that, to that name, that person, that individual, you know, whatever. And so now, anytime that you think of anything that leads you to him, one way or the other, that neuron will light up again. Like a vinyl record. Yes, yes, very much so. And so the particular pattern and array and arrangement and associations, like, you know, you thinking of Bill Clinton might not be the same set of associations that I have when I think of Bill Clinton. And and so it's the other neurons that light up when you start thinking about it. Those things that set of associations, that network of neurons and how they fire and the pattern of how they fire, that seems to be kind of what personality is and what memory is and like, and what consciousness is, which is a weird thing, right? And it's very individual and very personal and very connected to, um, you know, the, the, the experiences that you had growing and learning and changing as a person. It, it's what makes teleportation difficult too, is what you're talking about, right? Like the idea of teleporting one person to another place, like in Star Trek, it's because then yeah. how do you have the soul or how do you, I think it was William Gibson who said like jet lag is just like 
your soul is still left in the place that you left, and then your body's physically like in a new place. So if I fly from Toronto to Tokyo, I'm physically in Tokyo, but my soul is still in uh, Toronto, and it has to just catch up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. It's a, it's, it's mostly like the. What I really enjoyed about research and consciousness and the mind and personality and individuality is that it is there. It's both a this intangible mesh of experiences that, that we all have had that make us that also is sort of encoded in a physical matrix in our brain. Mm-hmm. So it's both a very tactile, real physical network, just like a, like a computer. Right. But it's also this kind of mushy melding of, of all the experiences and things that we've done in our lives. And those two things together make personality and make consciousness. And so the ability to transfer that over to somebody else, like I don't think because it's, it's, it's not just firing. It's like a physical enlargement of a neuron. So, so the Bill Clinton neuron gets bigger when you think about Bill, or, you know, because it's been assigned to something. Mm-hmm. And so the ones in your head, if I zapped into your head, your, your neurons would be different. And so, it, you know, it may or may not work. On the other hand, I'll tell you what, consciousness is the, the framework I just described is only one of about 15 different theories about what it is and how it works. Correct. So I liked that one. I think it was interesting. Um, and it sort of made sense to me. But if you talk to consciousness researchers or cognitive scientists is really what they are, they will say all kinds of stuff about how, how it all works and how it's all connected. So I think, um, you know, I, I would never say that this kind of thing is impossible because there's all kinds of stuff like the technology in the book is impossible because there's all kinds of stuff that we thought was impossible. And then all of a sudden we do it. So I, I think digitized consciousness will be possible. And I think it will be possible in not too much time, like maybe within our lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. when you have digitized consciousness, then it's sort of like you have, if you have a hardware and a software component mixed together with a, with a physical system, a body, then yeah, you could upload, change, whatever, you know, it, it could be, it could be any number of things that would make it work. So whether or not the version in this book is to work this way, I think it's, it's cool to speculate that it would, and it's, it's not impossible, but who knows? You know, well, that's a long answer. Yeah. We talked about that for a long time. You know, I could see that. Technically, it's it does exist because you said if you order the book before December 3rd, people can live in your life. Wasn't that? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So do you want to explain that? Because you kind of technically did invent it in real life. I did. So, so, you know, when you when you have a novel coming out, you want to try to get people to pre-order it, um, which is important because. It's, it's great if people buy a book off the bookshelf uh, at the bookstore or buy it online or get the ebook or the audiobook. All of those things are amazing and wonderful. And, and I love anyone who buys any of my books in any way. But if you pre order a book, so you go to Amazon, you go to Indigo Chapters, you know, you do whatever, like their website, Barnes and Noble, any of them, and you order a book in advance, um, you place the order so that it's delivered to you on the day it's released. Um, and so you want to do that with anyone by Charles Soule right now. Um, all of those orders, no matter how early they, they are placed, they stack. And so they all land on the, on the day of release, that week of release. And so they all add up to, like, uh, New York Times bestseller, ideally, or things like that. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, it's really great and really important. And publishers make a lot of decisions based on, um, you know, how the pre-orders are looking for a given book. So for me it was important to try and get as many people to pre-order this book as possible. So I set up this thing where anyone who pre-orders the book, right? So again, go to Amazon, you pre-order it, one click, you get a little receipt or like an email confirmation, whatever. It, or same for Indigo Chapters, same for, um, you know, any, 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 any retailer in any format, you'll get a receipt if you pre-order. If you email that receipt along with your mailing address to the email address beanyonewithanyone at gmail.com, so again, that's just the receipt for the pre-order, your mailing address, and be anyone with anyone at gmail.com. I will send you a, a cool package of, of stuff, so you'll get a really cool preview of the book. You'll get a, um, a beautiful enamel pin, and you'll get a uh, like a, a, this really kind of neat in-universe letter. Like there's a company that runs the technology of the Flash in the, in the story, and so that company will send you a letter inviting you to a trial. Will tell you the, the person you're going to flash into with all of which are like fun. And I personalize, personalize all of those to, to the, you know, the person who's, who has uh, ordered the book uh, and I sign them and they're all, they're kind of like this neat personal touch that I give everybody. So that's, that's the stuff that everybody gets. 
The other thing that's super cool is I'm doing this Be Me giveaway. So there's been a lot of pre-orders in so far, which is great. But when they're all done, it all, this all ends on December 2nd, midnight December 2nd. Um, I will choose a name from the list of people who have pre-ordered. And then I will uh, fly them and a guest to New York City, uh, put them up in a hotel just for like a weekend, a couple nights, and give them a list of all of the things that I really like to do in New York City. I've lived in New York for 21 years. I have a long list of things that I think are fun there. So there's like the places I run, the bars I go to, the stores I shop, the restaurants I like, all of those things. And so the, the winner can, can do those things or not do those things. It's kind of up to them. But um, they can just come to New York and have a fun weekend if they want. But they can also choose one of those activities for me to do with them. So it's a chance to, uh, if, if that's interesting, to hang out with me for, you know, a dinner or a drink or shopping or even going for a run, whatever sounds fun. And then, um, you know, and definitely having a fun weekend in New York City. So, mm-hmm. and all you have to do to be entered to win that is just, again, email, proof of pre-order, your mailing address, and to uh, to be anyone with anyone at gmail.com. Very easy. Yeah, and so picking up on some of the themes in the novel and what you just said of how people can be you for a weekend in New York City, one of the ways that you describe the flash technology and how it changes the society in the novel is the theme of trust, right? And Because this is a sci-fi novel, so what is harder to trust? Is it the technology, the flash technology, or the technology in general, or is it the people and how people choose to use it? Because we've seen this with like things like social media, how it can kind of start off benign and it's really simple, and you can totally. you can promote your books and get pre-orders and stuff like that. That's great, but then it's also used for like quote unquote evil. So, what is it that's harder to trust? Is it the people or the technology? Technology is a tool. I think it's always it's always people. Technology, like you know, guns don't fire themselves, bombs don't trigger themselves, right? At least until we get into Terminator stage. <laughs> but so it's always it's always people. It's always choices. It's always decisions that are being made. But you can also build and safeguard the technology to try to prevent them from being misused. But people will get around them if they're industrious enough. In this in this book, there are sort of two two overarching versions of the way of the way the technology is used. There's what's called the light chair, which is Fully legal, completely registered. Um, if you, it's it's like Airbnb, right? So if I were to flash into your your body and use it for you know a week to stay in Toronto or something like that, then there's this massive system of oversight and registration and all those things so that everyone would know, like the the, the government, the authorities, the police, whatever, would know exactly what I was doing. And so, and you would know as the person who kind of leased yourself out to me there would be like a set of, of, of allowed activities. Like if you didn't want me to drink, I wouldn't be allowed to drink. And if I did, there would be a fee or a penalty, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so that's the light here. And it's the way the vast majority of flash travel happens. The other version is called the dark share. And that is obviously much darker and scarier. And it's, it's kind of a black market for, for the flash. And so within it, if you need a lot of money very quickly or just for any purpose, you can rent yourself out as a vessel to anyone, no questions asked, for any purpose. And so you might say, I cost $10,000 for 20 minutes, but for those 20 minutes, someone can use your body for whatever they choose. And so people can use that for committing a crime. Uh, They can use it for um, if they want to do heroin and not have the effect hit them, they can use it for that. If they want to, um, you know, like, I don't know, any, any number of dangers, like if they want to go parasailing, you know, who knows? Like things that they wouldn't feel comfortable doing in their own body, but it's very difficult or expensive to get a, a light share vessel to do. You can do it in the dark share. And so the people who use the dark share are desperate, and the people who rent themselves out in the dark share are very desperate. But obviously that's a good place for great stories. And so there's a lot of cool things that happen in the dark share. They're, they're creepy, but that's where a lot of our story is set in the book it, it, because Anami is, is using the dark share because she needs to get a lot of money very, very quickly. But we also obviously explore the way that, that the light share works. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, I really didn't want to shy away from the way that technology could be used for great, wonderful things and for obviously terrifying things. Yeah, well, and I wanted to bring that up because you have a background as a lawyer, uh, which trains you, I guess the best way to put it, is it trains you to think and operate systematically. So... Once you introduce this radical new technology uh, into this society, uh, the light chair and the dark chair, like, were, was it a challenge or was it exciting to figure out how to how it transform different aspects of this society? Because you cover like uh, money, sex, fame. You cover a number of different areas throughout the novel. Yeah, I mean, I think you. I've always thought 
legal background is useful when I'm creating stories because it gives me a framework for, for like detail work and kind of, you know, you, when, you, when you're creating a legal argument, drafting a brief, creating, creating a case, you start, you start top level and then you start filling in details as you go and you anticipate issues and you anticipate questions and, and you kind of you, you build. It's always a, a, a process of construction. Um, and that's how I approach stories as well. It's, it's a way where you, you know, you start at a 30,000 foot level and you just throw a lot of ideas at the wall. And then over time, some of those ideas start to connect. I'm working on my third novel now. I just finished the first big kind of chunk of chapters for it. Mm -hmm. And even in the process of working on it, like there are ideas that you, I just didn't even, I could not have seen them unless I had spent the time early thinking about the world and thinking about how it would be and thinking and how, how it would feel. And I, I, I feel like it jinxes stories to talk about them before they're ready and, and so on. So I'm not going to, but um, I think uh, it, it's, it's, it is something that I can feel the legal background just helping. I mean, being a lawyer is not creative in the traditional sense, but you do kind of have to be creative because you have to think your way around problems and thinking your way around problems is, is a lot of creative work too. You know, what is the, what is the challenge I'm presented with in this creative work? What is the, you know, the song I need to figure out how to write or play in an interesting way. What is the, you know, the subject I need to paint in a way that's going to feel unique and personal. Uh, you name it. And it's all about solving problems and laws like that too. Yeah, well, and anyone also kind of extends uh, your consistent theme of power, right, which shows up repeatedly in your work. I mean, you had uh, Daredevil versus uh, Mayor Kingpin. You've written about uh, Vader and Palpatine. Uh, Oracle, you're your first novel too, right? It kind of dealt with power and how power was shifting were you conscious and trying to explore power as well as much as you were like exploring uh, the cure for Alzheimer's and consciousness? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's because it's, you know, you look at something like Facebook, you look at something like Google, Apple, any of these extraordinarily powerful technology conglomerates. I mean, they're not even really sending called companies. They're like, they're, they're, they're geological institutions at this point that, that are underpinning and manipulating so much of society. Like Facebook had, had, Facebook is a place where you share pictures of your aunt, you know, mm -hmm. or whatever. Your aunt gets to like pictures of your baby. And yet it somehow played a massive role in the American election and, and other ones around the world, right? So, And we still don't know what it actually is. Like Facebook has never actually said whether they're a marketing company or a journalism or media company or social media. Like it, they've never actually said what it actually is. They're, they're a, they are a data collect, in my opinion. They're a data collection company that uses that data in as many ways as they can to to increase their profits. I mean, they, they collate and then sell information about individuals and, and they find as many markets for it as they can. And sometimes, unfortunately, those markets are disruptive to democracy and freedom. I mean, whatever, that's a pretty harsh thing to say, but like, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of, uh, of how, how that evolved because we didn't see it, right? Like you, you sometimes you can't see these things coming and anyone is very much about that, how you, you just cannot always see the consequences of what you're doing and what you're what you're participating in like i always think of candy crush right candy mm -hmm. crush is a great example um you know silly game mat free game on your phone you play you have a great time i played candy crush i enjoyed it i played through whatever like hundreds of levels of that game and i did so even after i found out that candy crush is is a blast but it is a data aggregator in the same way as facebook is Every time you play it, it is tracking your location. It is tracking other things you're doing on your phone. It is tracking all kinds of stuff, and it sells that information. And, and that's, that's how it makes its money, much more so than here by spend a dollar to get a power-up or an extra life in this level. Like Candy Crush's real, real source of income is the data of the people who play it. And you can turn a lot of those things off, not all of them, but like if you go into the settings, you can turn some of those things off on Candy Crush and related games. But it, it, I read a book about all the thing. I didn't know that until I read this great book about all of it. And I think it was called Future Wars or something like that. But it was all about data and information and what it, how powerful it is and how it, how it affects our lives so much. And the, one of the lines from that book that has always stuck with me is that if the service is free, you're the product. So from Facebook to Gmail to Candy Crush, if the service is free, to Twitter, right? If the service is free, you're the product. Mm hmm that that is something to be very aware of whenever you're using any anything like that i would personally rather pay money for privacy and i'm, I'm shocked that there are not more companies out there that are that are just promoting that like saying spend two bucks a month with us and we actually will not track you we will not share your data you know i think they i think 
if the services became more robust than just email or whatever, I think people would be very excited about it. Yeah, and picking up on the that theme, you have a great line on uh, page 310 in anyone, and it says, the value of a face was power. In in this society of uh, that's created in anyone, once you have this new technology, like you said, in terms of privacy, all these things, stranger danger doesn't work anymore because how can you trust the face that you're seeing when you don't know who's actually in that body? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a... Um, did you ever see um, Pretty Woman? Right. I mean, I mean, it's a kind of, you know, it's a movie, whatever. From the Julia, 90s. Roberts? It's Julia Roberts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That one. Yeah, she's the prostitute, and Richard Gere is like the big pimp or the big customer or whatever, and he takes her yeah, away yeah, from yeah. The... The big, He's like a rich guy, and like, and they fall in love, and it's just you know whatever. Mm-hmm. But there's a scene in that movie, indirectly inspired, sort of one of the ideas of anyone, which is that you know, she goes into a a fancy store to buy dresses and for for a dinner she's going to have with Richard Gere and Richard Gere gives her a lot of money he's like just go get a nice get a nice dress and she goes in and the, and the clerks kind of know that she doesn't fit in I don't know if they know that she's a prostitute but they know that she doesn't fit in and they make uh, many many assumptions about her based on what she's wearing and then it's all very traumatic for her and then Richard Gere comes in and swoops in and, and saves the day and is like look I'm going to buy you know I could buy this store and shut it down tomorrow treat her well and you know putting aside elements of you know, the guy coming in and swooping in to save the woman because she can't save herself, whatever. It's a dated, gated concept. But the part of that that did resonate with me was the idea that people make so many assumptions about you based on the clothing you're wearing, the color of your skin, your age, your ableness, your um, apparent gender. Like all of those things add up to an immediate unconscious value judgment, uh, or not even value judgment, like a hierarchy judgment, that you are placed in a slot immediately based on all of those things, whether people know it or not. And mm-hmm. I think people can even, even, you know, I try to be as open as possible about every person I meet, you know, I think, you know, and I think most good people do, right. You don't make any assumptions about anybody, but at the same time, there are just these, there are things that are hardwired into us. Like you see, like, and, and I think age is a great example. You know, you see a 13 year old and you, you have certain expectations of what they are and what they're going to behave and what they're capable of that are different than, a 45-year-old that's different than an 85-year-old, right? Yeah. Um, and what they are and what their, what their approach to life and their outlook is and all that stuff. And I think, that's, I think that's fair, right? Because a 13-year-old is not the same as your average 14-year-old and your average 85-year-old. They approach things differently. And you need to have, you need to be aware, too, of sometimes when somebody's threatening or somebody could be potentially dangerous. Yeah, I mean, there are cues, right? There are, there are things that we pick up. But, but in the world of the Flash, all of those are gone. You know, the, there are some limits on it, like if you're, you know, you, you, there are age limits on using it, like you can't use it if you're a baby and stuff like that. But generally speaking, the person that is walking up to you could be literally anyone behind that skin. And they could be wearing the skin they're wearing or the body they're wearing for any purpose. You know, they could, so you cannot make those judgments and, and you have to at least a little bit hesitate before you can, you can make the same sort of analysis. Now, there are flaws in that, right? Of course, it's, it's a story, but like, because... You know, the idea of somebody choosing, you know, the, the, the person's choice in their vessel is probably implicit in their original being, too. So, but you never know. And so it's, it's, a, it's a way to reconfigure society's expectations about stuff slightly, which is interesting and something I explore in the book. And, and it's, you know, whether it would work, you know, like, you know, the, the main character is, um, is black. Gabby is black. Her husband, Paul, is black. And, and one of the things that she's very thoughtful about and concerned about with this technology is how, in theory, the, the, the sort of pause and analysis that I just mentioned could help with racial disparity and racial, you know, things about the way people see each other in the world and the assumptions they make about people just based on their, the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, both Gabby and Paul are like, this isn't going to fix everything. Obviously, people are, you know, race is still going to be racist. People are still make assumptions and it's all going to be how it is. But if Maybe it makes things 10% or 20% better. Maybe if people hesitate for just that little bit of time because they don't know the mind behind the skin the same way that they do now, maybe it's just a little better. It's not going to fix everything, but if things are just a little better, that's, that's a target worth aiming for. So, you know, it, it's just fun. Like, the book has a lot of issues like that built into its structure, which I find very, um, you know, it's just it's compelling to think about them, compelling to write about them, compelling to try to write about them in an interesting way that isn't, like overly simplistic because these are these are significant issues, right? So, 
Yeah, one of the things that you do that's really compelling is um, I don't want to give away too much, but the the CEO of the large corporation that runs the Flash, he clearly is not empathetic. The idea of like that you would be able to switch into somebody's body, like you said, if I w- went to a black person, then I could experience uh, their point of view and see how some of the racism and things works, would naturally kind of develop empathy. But there are a number of people who are using the Flash who don't have that empathy. And so that's also kind of a flip side, too, where, like, the technology has the potential to kind of be, like, all Mr. Rogers and Rainbow and peace and love and whatever. But it actually sometimes will harden people and kind of make them dig in. Yeah, I, I, that's right. You know, like, there's a I, – I didn't want to say that the tech – because technology is not always used in only one way. Um, technology is used in a zillion different ways. The way that you use your – your smartphone, whatever, whatever you have, I'm sure there's some overlap in the way that you and I both use our respective phones, but it's not the same. And the way you use the internet, the way you use um, social media, it's not necessarily the same way that I do it. And, and so there are going to be very many approaches, particularly to something as, as drastic as, as the flash in, in a society where, where it's very pretty much easily accessible, not super expensive and, and so on and so forth. And so, um, some people use it for good. Some people use it for bad. Most people just use it. You know, like people don't like, I don't know. I, I don't go into using technology with any sort of like purpose other than trying to use the tech for what I need to use it for. Um, then there are other people who affirmatively use, try to use technology for good things or bad things. And we can go back to Facebook or whatever, you know, but I think in this story, it was important to me to create a very well-rounded picture of the way that technology like this would actually be applied and used in the world. Um, and it's everything from something, like I said, uh, like, a, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a fun bit in the story about um, what are called retro matches, which are when an entertainer or a, or a sports figure who is, um, who is sort of too old or has aged out of their prime um, will, will flash into a younger vessel. So, like, there's a, there's a bit where... Um, in the story with two tennis pros, uh, like McEnroe and Sampras or something like people, I forget the exact names I use, but they're people who, because they're, they're a different generation, they never were able to play against each other in their prime. And they both flash into, into, you know, talented young tennis players who are in their twenties and have this televised match. And so the idea is that they, you know, you can, you can use the technology to see things that you never would have been able to see before. Mm-hmm. Um, entertainers who are sort of getting old might flash into a younger vessel to, to have a, you know, to sing again or something like that. Um, so that's, that's, you know, like, it's kind of fun to think about the interesting, weird, cool ways that technology like this would be used. Um, and obviously there's a lot of bad stuff too. We talked about the dark share um, and, and other things that are just part of the book that I kind of feel like readers should be able to find it on their own. Yeah. It's the classic thing. I mean, you come out of comic books as well. So it's the classic thing of a lot of comics and cartoons where like, if this technology falls into the wrong hands, right. And so the, yeah, people, yeah, yeah. the people have to like race against the clock or whatever to make sure this technology doesn't fall into the wrong hands. And so you quickly realize in this novel who some of the wrong hands are and who are some of the good hands. Yeah. And uh, in terms of seeing it, people will be able to see anyone, not just read it, because you sold the rights to it. Is that correct? The TV rights or the movie yeah, rights? It actually, um, I had a, I had a, it was, it was pretty wonderful. I've had a really big year with respect to a lot of my projects. You know, I had uh, uh, my first novel, Oracle Year, is, is in pretty firm development um, for TV. It's, that's moved pretty far down the road. I have a comic book series called Curse Words that was optioned for development this year. I have a, a new image series, comic series with my friend Scott Snyder and Giuseppe Camicoli called uh, Undiscovered Country, which was just sold for film. I'm going to be writing a screenplay for that with Scott. And then um, more recently, anyone was sold to the British uh, production company Carnival Studios. They did Downton Abbey, among other things. Mm-hmm. And they, they actually acquired the book on what's called a preempt, which was very flattering. A, a preempt is when a, a studio goes to my team and says, look, you know, we want this very, very much. And we would... We will pay what it takes to. We will make an offer that is that can't be refused in order to prevent it from being shown to any other potential buyers. So it doesn't fall into the wrong hands. Yes, exactly. They did not want this book to fall into the wrong hands. So they made an offer that was spectacular, uh, and and I was I said, hey, this is great. You know, you guys seem awesome. Let's do it. And so I'll be writing the pilot for the the show as well, which I have to kick off next week pretty much which is kind of crazy it's all sort of happening at the same time but it's all wonderful stuff so assuming things go well with it uh fingers crossed then um 
it's something that could be, you know, could be moving into active development later, um, you know, later in 2020, which would be phenomenal. Yeah. And before we wrap up, one of your other projects is you are right. You're actively writing Star Wars uh, books for Marvel, including uh, the story of uh, Ben to Ren is how you kind of put it for the Kylo uh, Ren story. And so when you're working on a character like that, because you also wrote Vader and Vader is obviously very much established character and there's a lot of mythology and stuff like that. This one for uh, Ben Solo, you're kind of charting his path and how he kind of ends up on the dark side. So is it is it a little bit more difficult uh, to kind of like chart that path when there's not as much necessarily mythology associated with the character? Mm, it's it's not as hard as you would think because Ben Solo is the grandson of Darth Vader, the nephew of Luke Skywalker, the son of Han Solo and Leia Organa. Um, he's connected to Lando Calrissian. He's you know, and, and this is all this is all Ben Solo, right? It's not even Kylo Ren. So mm-hmm. you have a lot of powerful mythological figures within the Star Wars universe that, that are directly connected to this guy. He's a student at Luke's temple. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of really, really cool things that, that I can work with. So I, you know, I didn't find it to be, I mean, I'm not going to say it wasn't challenging. It was challenging because there's a lot like Kylo Ren, Ben Solo, Adam Driver, they have taken on a very vivid, important role in the Star Wars fandom. And people have very specific ideas of what they think that character is, should be, and what they want from a story about him, mm-hmm. particularly this story, which is when he, he turns from good to bad. And all of his potential as a, as a Jedi is, is burned away so he becomes this monstrous Kylo Ren. Um, it also explores the idea of who the Knights of Ren are, which is something everybody wanted to know. It explores stuff with Snoke. It explores stuff with Luke Temple. It's like all of these incredible questions that everybody's had since the Force Awakens get answered in this book. So the the pressure of giving Ben Solo like cool associations like Darth Vader has, that was not a that was not a problem. That's easy. Relatively speaking, right? None of this is easy, but compared with other challenges of the book, that one was not a big deal. The challenge was making making a vivid portrait of Ben Solo that felt correct to this character and answer the questions that everybody has in satisfying ways. Like that stuff was the challenge, mm-hmm. but I think we did a great job. Will Sliney is drawing it, did a hell of a job. Uh, Guru Effect is coloring. Um, he's a sort of two guys and they're, they're phenomenal. And Travis Lanham lettered it. And it's, I, have, I am more proud of that issue than anything I've put out in a while. I think it's really, really strong. Um, but you know, it's, it's, as you said at the beginning of this call, it's been a heck of a heck of an end of the year. Like I mean, between Undiscovered Country One launching, anyone yeah. coming out December 3rd, Kylo Ren comes out December 18th, right before the movie. And then in January, I'm relaunching the, the Star Wars flagship series for Marvel with a new number one. Right. So kind of incredible over, you know, it's less than two months and all that stuff happened. Yeah. And just to go back to Undiscovered Country, you recently tweeted that it went to a third printing, right? So there's yeah. obviously a good demand for it and people are really digging it. Seems to be the case. I mean, Scott and I have been, we just were at the, uh, a warehouse, a Midtown Comics warehouse yesterday in, on Long Island. Uh, Midtown Comics is one of the biggest comic book retailers in North America, if not the biggest. And and so they had ordered, I don't know, like, they had us sign 4,000 copies of the number one issue. So it, it gave us, both gave us kind of wrist cramps, which is fine. But um, <laughs> the the idea that a book has launched, that's a creator-owned book, right? This is not based on Wolverine or Star Wars or any, or Batman, any characters mm-hmm. you know. It's just based on premise that people think is cool which is the premise of Undiscovered Country is that the United States one day, a few years from now, just completely steals itself off from the rest of the world. Walls go up, like satellite uh, blocking happens, so you can't see what, you can't look into the country. And then there's like this air force field kind of thing goes around the country, so you can't fly over it either. So there's just no way. No one knows what's going on here. All of the sort of the coastal borders, the northern and southern borders just shut off. And for 30 years, that's the case. And nobody hears anything at all from what's happening in the United States. During that time, uh, an epidemic starts to rage. A pandemic starts raging the outer world uh, toward the end of that 30-year period. And a message comes out from the United States saying, you know, send an expedition in. We, we have a cure, and we'd be willing to negotiate to release it to you um, and maybe even open our borders again. But you need to send this expedition in, and you've got to be cool, and we'll see what happens. So the expedition of seven people is put together. They go over the wall. They're immediately shot down. They crash. 
and and what they find is that the United States they were promised is nothing at all like the United States that's actually there. And so the book is 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 these seven people journeying through this this new land, this undiscovered country, trying to find out what's happening inside. Uh, it's it's ongoing. It's very epic and massive in scale. And it it when it launched, it was the largest launch for Image in the past five years and the second largest in the past ten years. Congratulations. So, yeah, it's really wild. And Scott and Camo and I, um, so I did I did the Dark, the Dark Vader book we were talking about with Pacific Chemicoli and the art. Mm-hmm. So it's, we're reunited, and then Scott Snyder and I have been friends forever. Scott is, is obviously very, very well known for his work at DC, including Batman and Metal and Justice League. But he also does incredibly uh, excellent creator-owned work like Witches and AD and so on. American Vampire. Yeah, American Vampire, of course, uh, in the wake. You know, he's, he's, just, he's just a champion. Yeah. So... So it's it's an all-star team. Matt Wilson is coloring, who is I think just you know a genius. I think he's brilliant as a as a as a storyteller with color. And then um, my friend uh, Chris Crank is lettering, who is who lettered my series Curse Word with Curse Word with Ryan Brown. So we have uh, really an all-star team on on, on Discovered Country. We um, are very excited about where it's going to go. As I mentioned earlier in the call, it, it also sold for a film deal. So we are. You know, like there's just so much craziness around that series, and and now it's kind of our job to tell the story. Like we have, it could not have launched bigger, it could not have launched better. We're over the moon, and now it it really is our job to deliver on um, the promise of the premise, and and hopefully our, our skill and our pedigree and all of those things will go into it to make something people like. Where can anyone find you online? The easiest way to find me, I'm very active on Twitter, uh, as it sounds like you've seen. Uh, my Twitter is just Charles Soul, C H A R L E S S O U L E. My, I also have a website, um, charlessoul.com, which has updates. It has a store with a bunch of like signed stuff for me and all kinds of different things. It also has, has weekly updates on what's going on with me in terms of releases, has my appearances calendar. Um, you can also sign up there for my monthly newsletter, which is, goes out once a month, goes into your inbox, and gives you sort of a more detailed dive on a couple of, you know, whatever the latest news is that I've been happening, that I've had going on. Um, I often put in like exclusive links for newsletter subscribers there, like, you know, if you want special advanced copies of things or signed copies of, of rare stuff or whatever, like that's the best way to get it signed for my newsletter. So there you go. All right. And as you said, novel number three, you're, you're a few chapters in, so that should be uh, coming along soon as well, right? Yeah. I, I mean, fingers crossed. My, my guess, I have, I have uh, my 2020 is pretty full with stuff. I have a lot of things coming out over 2020, which I'm excited about. Mm-hmm. I would guess, Based on publication schedules, my time to write it, all that stuff, that novel three will be a 2021 release, which is okay with me. Like, that's fine. Yeah. Um, because I have, I have a lot of other things to get done in the meantime. So, um, uh, but, but my goal is to have a novel out for me every 12 to 18 months. So, between Oracle and anyone that's about 18, and then um, between anyone in novel three is going to be about 18 months, I think. So I think that's a pretty good, pretty good schedule. I just want to, you know, build a brand as a novelist where people know what they're going to get from me, which are exciting high concepts with, with very fast paced page turning execution of those high concepts. Yeah. Um, you know, and just to close up the, uh, I don't want to give away too much, but there's some kind of loose threads for the ending of anyone. Is this a world that you want to maybe return to later on, or are you just going to kind of leave it yeah. for now? Absolutely. I, I wrote anyone. Um, it's a standalone and the story is, is compelling and the conclusion I think is compelling and it feels good mm-hmm. as, in terms of the, the story that you've read. Uh, all the characters get wrapped up in a way that I think is interesting but and feels thematically correct. But there is absolutely a way to continue the story. And once you get to the end, it's very obvious uh, what that could be. And someday I, I, I could write that book. Um, I might try to incorporate it into the TV show. Like there's a lot of different ways that it could all go. But for now, I'm just focused on making sure this book launches well and people like it, and, and that's kind of my job at the moment. So as Charles said, anyone comes out December 3rd, and if you get uh, pre-orders and you send it to him, what's the email again for the pre-orders? Right. It's beanyonewithanyone at gmail.com. And then you have the potential to actually be, or, uh, yeah, actually be Charles for like a weekend, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I look forward to whoever wins that. It's going to be fun. All right, that's it. We covered all the good stuff, I think, Charles. Uh, I took a little bit more time, but I apologize. But there was a lot of cool stuff in the novel I wanted to kind of get to. So uh, thank you for taking the time with me and chatting. All right, it's great. I'm just going to head out to dinner and and write, and then I might go to the movies tonight. Enjoy the movie. Thank you, Charles. Sure, take care. Bye-bye.
Yo, thank you so much, Charles, for taking the time. Uh, he was off to dinner and a movie, so he's having a good night. We covered consciousness. We covered the new novel, Anyone, which is out December 3rd. We covered his writing for Star Wars, including Kylo Ren, uh, the story of basically Ben to Ren. Uh, his latest comic book was Scott Snyder, Undiscovered Country, as we mentioned, is doing really well. And uh, Anyone is a fascinating novel. It's sci-fi, and one of the things I like about it is, as he mentioned in the interview, it jumps in time. Sometimes with sci-fi novels, you have this like behemoth corporation, and people are just trying to shut it down, but you never get to see how the corporation actually grew or become established. And other times, you get stories where you get this, the whole story is just the corporation becoming established. And this is how we ended up the way we did. With anyone, Charles gives you both stories. Somebody confronting the evil organization, but at the same time, you get to go back in the past and see how the evil organization was built and the, the ethical and immoral decisions that were made along the way, the compromises that were made along the way for this technology to take hold and to take root in this society. It's, that's what good science fiction is. It's that cautionary tale. It's the like, these are the things that you're not paying attention to. And if you do not pay attention to them, it will be dire. It will be bad. We do this in real life sometimes. We're like, we use the wrong metrics to say things are getting better or say things are getting worse. And with science fiction, you have this kind of grand metaphor and you can kind of now speculate and to see how things would actually evolve and how they would, what would they become when they grow up? As we touched upon with social media in the interview, like, when it first came out, it was kind of nice. It was neat. It was fun. Maybe you can connect with people of shared interests and things like that. But now it's become or has evolved to become this insidious creature like that kind of stalks us in uh, our current society. Maybe we could have seen it's coming, but not enough people writing science fiction about it. We ignore science fiction at our peril. Anyone's great. If you are looking for a new novel, if you want to get into that, all the kind of stuff we were talking about, consciousness, body shifting, if you're into kind of like Blade Runner, Get Out is another kind of reference, that whole kind of like shifting again. This is something we're checking out. You can follow me on the Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at my pal Sammy. I've been Sam Yunin. This has been my summer layer. Anyone, yo.